Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Dara here. Are you ready to talk fish? You want some fish tails? I got a lot of fish tails for you. All right. So first off, I have one of the founders of a kind of very cool new aquaculture fish situation in southern Minnesota. So here's the deal. In 2015, a couple of friends, Matthew Graber and Zach Lind, launched Driftless Fish in Rushford, Minnesota. It's an old school fish aquaculture system because old school because it has these spring-fed natural ponds, such as they had in the 19th century, but it's got a lot of new school thinking putting environmental impact at the top of the priority list, as well as the fish quality. You can now find their fish all over the Twin Cities. It's at Kowalski's. It's at fancy restaurants like Spoon and Stable and Young Joni. But I wanted to find out more about this. I wrote about this everything cool happening in fish for the last Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine, and Driftless was one of the very cool things. And I am very happy to have Zach Lind here in the studio So, Zach Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So, explain to the people you have fish. Like, you have a couple, you have more than a few. You have a whole farm full of fish, but they're not, you know, rows of them like corn. How does this work? How do you have a fish farm? Well, it's a a long story. Um, We have a collective of of five farms in southeast Minnesota. They're all spring fed. And we have a central hatchery location where we bring in fertilized eggs get them up to a fingerling size, and then we stock out outdoor spring-fed ponds. And these are things that existed as a fish farm, like you didn't dig a hole. That's right. So what what, what was there? Like, How did this all happen? So the region, Driftless, the Driftless region where all these farms are located, has actually had a long history of spring-fed fish farming, dating back to the, the late 1800s, actually. And the high concentration of springs is a perfect environment for raising rainbow trout. So springs, for anybody who doesn't know, like that's water coming out of the ground. Yeah, natural, uh, free-flowing springs that are just bubbling out of the ground. They're constant, 48-degree temperature year-round. It's the highest quality water, really, that there is. We, we even drink from some of our natural springs. It's, it's that clean of water. Because I see it on bottles. People are like, it's Poland Springs, and that's a good right. word. So you have the Rushford Springs or the... Yep, yep. We have each... Each farm has its own separate spring, ranging anywhere from 250 to 2,000 gallons per minute. Wow. Which is, that's a lot of water. And so you, the springs come up, they feed ponds, or those dug up? Did you dig the ponds? Did someone dig the ponds, or just natural? No, the ponds were dug. Some of them were dug back in the 1940s by hand. Most of them were built in the early 80s by a former fish company called Minnesota Aqua Farms. Okay. And they went out of business in the early 90s. And so most of this infrastructure was left over from that operation. And then I discovered them in 2011 and started piecing the facilities back together. And you had a, a kind of eureka moment 
a long time before you started, you thought fish farming, wave of the future. Why did you think that? Yeah, so I was actually in school for mechanical engineering, so completely opposite of fish farming. But I'd always wanted to do something big, even as a little kid. But, you know, when I was four years old, I said I wanted to be an inventor. And so I was trying to problem solve on, on big problems even while I was in school, and I was constantly researching. And the food industry struck me as something that's really important. Yeah, we got to eat three times a day or we just get so crabby. Exactly. <laughs> so I was researching different farming methods, trying to find something that was, you know, unique, cutting edge, something that I could rack my brain on and something that was, you know, an, an early industry, something I could get my hands in and develop. And I stumbled across really through YouTube videos, the promise of aquaculture and why it was so important to develop an industry around it. And I feel like in 2011, if I go in my own mind's way back machine, everybody was tilapia farming. Like that was the trend. It was like, I'm going to get a, a silo and I'm going to fill it full of these, you know, I don't want to say dirty, but these kind of fish that don't mind being crowded. And you thought, no, that's not it. No. And actually I started there. Oh, you did? Yes. I started it with a 30 gallon aquarium. So I, I was not I was not a farmer, but I was experimenting. You know, that was a big wave at the time. Yeah, you, know, you read about it online all the promise of aquaponics and tilapia is like the big thing, and so I bought thirty little tilapia fry, and I had a thirty gallon aquarium, and I was playing around with it, and quickly I realized that that this isn't it, but there's got to be something else out there. Yeah, because you end up uh, kind of bacteria farming <laughs> by accident. The kids and I got uh, just. It was like this very trendy thing we got to try out. It was like a little fish tank and lettuce grew in the top and the water was supposed to circulate through the the roots of the lettuce and that was going to clean everything. Things went south. Like things were perfect for about a week, maybe actually four or five weeks. And then things went terribly south and we could never get it back because we had bacteria. And those closed systems there's a, you know, those closed systems, they don't work. They're they're very finicky. Uh, it's a very complex balance of nutrients when you have a closed system like that. So that's where we have the benefit of a constant flow of fresh spring water. And we're able to raise a, a cold water species like trout, which is more premium. And than sun. You you have the sunlight. I've looked at your mm -hmm. Instagram. Uh, uh, anybody wants to hop on and go look at Driftless Fish Instagram. It's pretty cool. Of course, because it's a spring, it's coming up all the time it doesn't ice over you're just out there all winter you know, people know this but i i was just you know it's amazing it looks amazing a lot of people are shocked when they find out that i harvest fish in the middle of january they're like you're in the water in the middle of january what are you what are you thinking well actually the water's warming you up in the winter it's 48 <laughs> degrees when it's 20 below outside so it's it's not so bad but, so yeah. this so the system you have works better because fresh water is always coming in and there's sunlight, and it's not, um, you know, it's not a, a warm, closed right. system. Right. There's a lot more uh, balance there with, with the water, providing both a pH balance but also managing nutrients in the water. So nothing gets bioaccumulated. Everything's constantly being cleaned out of the ponds. And it, it just provides a, a more stable environment and easier to manage than a closed system. Okay. So then for people that are familiar with, say, poultry, you you buy eggs the same way farmers buy egg farmers buy or chicken farmers buy the eggs or buy the baby chicks. You buy the fish eggs and then take and then grow them all the way big. That's correct. We buy eggs from Trout Lodge. It's a company in western United States, and they, they specialize in just raising trout eggs. 
So they have the brood stock, and they develop the, the genetic line. They fertilize the eggs, and then they ship them to us. And then two weeks after we get them, they're starting to hatch, and we do the early rearing process and get them up to a fingerling. Interesting. And so you you started this company. You had the idea in 2011, and you started it in 2015. And when so it must have been nerve-wracking to get those first fish in the water. Yes. Yes, I was experimenting for many years hatching my own eggs, but once once it's for real and you have partners, now now the fish are really important and those are going to be part of your livelihood. So it was it was very nerve-wracking getting the first it was a batch of 10,000 eggs that we started with. So 10,000. How many made it, do you know? 9,000. 9,000 passes. Yeah, not good. bad for the first time. Yeah. So you put the eggs in in one of you you have five of these pond sister spring pond systems at this point, right? Yeah, one is a designated hatchery though. The rest of them receive the 6-inch fingerlings oh, okay. and take them to the full market size. Oh, okay. Very interesting. And so you you put them in there they and then you have to feed them obviously. There's just not enough like flies just happen to be going right. past. Right. Yeah, we feed them in the hatchery round the clock, uh, seven days a week. We even have some automated feeders to help us keep enough feed on them. You know, when they're when they're little, we want to give them every opportunity to to eat because they're a lot more susceptible to problems when they're young. Once they get to you know a healthy six inch fish, which is you know it's not a fingerling anymore. That's that's a fish. Uh, they're able to handle you know one once or twice a day getting fed. Okay, so they stay inside with you at until they're six inches and then they go out into the ponds is that the yes and yeah. do you call them ponds or you call them yeah, something they're, else? No, they're ponds they're ponds they're okay definitely ponds. well i get the lingo correct here i don't want to uh be calling things lakes or uh so they you raise them to six inches then they go out in the ponds and you continue to feed them and then that's part what do they eat they don't just eat other fish right trout are a carnivorous species so naturally they would eat smaller fish and bugs and our ponds are, are lined with millions of bugs, actually. Uh, the, the bottoms are all gravel lined, and the sides are large rocks, coral. And so it, it houses you know, surface area for millions of freshwater shrimp and stoneflies, all such things like that. So do you, do you buy stoneflies from somewhere? No, they're just naturally occurring. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's a natural ecosystem in there. And then we, of course, do feed them commercial feed as well. So you feed the fish commercial feed, but not the flies. You know? right, <laughs> You're not right. feeding flies. Okay. <laughs> uh, that seems funny to me. Though I imagine it must happen. I mean, if you have like a, a – a, oh, what is it? My kids wanted a chameleon, and we never got one because I was they realized I had to start raising crickets for food. I was like, that's too much. I can't, I can't raise food crickets. I don't know. I don't have the time. Yeah, well, that's the next wave of aquaculture really is is insects for, for, for feed. Really? Yeah. Yep. And that's something that we've experimented a lot too. And so right now we're raising naturally bugs in the pond for them. Oh, that's a brainwave I had a while ago. We could talk about this off the air, but people are constantly trying to get me to eat crickets. They're like, oh, have crickets, have cricket flour. And I say, no, I will never eat crickets. I will never eat cricket flour. But I don't see why you wouldn't raise them for chickens to eat. I exactly. think they would enjoy that. Yeah. that's That's the future in my mind. I don't think in this country, we're going to get everybody on board with eating insects. I'm never going to do it. Oh, no, same. God is my witness. I'm not eating crickets. People send me these things in the mail. They're like, "Try these cricket Doritos." It's like I don't. I don't want them in a chip. I don't want them in a bread. I don't want them. 
No. Yeah, right. I, I just want them in the fish diet. <laughs> yes. And that's where they're, and that's no, where they're that's needed. who's supposed to eat them. Fish are supposed to eat them. Uh, chickens and turkeys, like, they would enjoy them. That would be a good thing for them to eat because I think they'd be happy. Exactly. All right, we got to take a little break here for commercials. We're going to come back and talk more to Zach Lind from the Driftless Fish Company about how this all works. This is the future of food. You go to fancy restaurants, you can have this Driftless Fish. Where does it come from? Why are we happy about it? How can we stop people from sending me bags of Cricket Doritos? More when we come back. Dara here. We are back. We are back with Zach Lind from the Driftless Fish Company. I am so interested in how you can raise fish in ponds in Minnesota. This is important because there's too much pressure on the oceans. We've already seen species go extinct, and we've already seen species uh, like northern Atlantic cod we, we relied too heavy on those. We leaned too heavy. It was not good for the fish. It was not good for the fishermen. It was not good for the eaters. It was not a good situation. We need to have better ideas. Zach Lind is one of the people that has this better idea. He's got five ponds of rainbow trout, and I think that's all in southern Minnesota. We've been talking about this. All right, Zach, I'm happy we're back. Let's talk about this. So you put them in at six inches. You feed them feed, and you're kind of smart so you're experimenting with different ways to feed them right yeah yeah put them in at six inches and that takes about six months to grow and then another 12 months in the pond on both the natural bugs and the feed that we feed them and they're up to a 17 to 18 inch size and that's a, a two pound live fish and that's our ideal market size and that's beautiful. And then, so you harvest them. What, I just got to ask, like, you're not out there with a fishing pole what do you, or a net. What do you do? We actually have an interesting harvest practice. So I get in there with my waders and a net, and I go and catch them. Uh, fortunately, rainbow trout are voracious eaters, and you throw a few little sprinkles of feed on the top of the pond, and they all come running. Oh. So they're not that difficult to catch. All right. And so then uh, do you you know, gut them and do all that stuff or you have someone else, like you have a, a different a distributor do that? We have we have a distributor here in Minneapolis, the fish guys that handle all of our processing and distribution. Yeah, I walked through there once and uh, just to get a tour and see everything and your fish happened to be there, which is kind of the genesis of this conversation. And the, the guys that do that move so fast, they have a very sharp knife and they're just like, foot, foot. I used to work in a restaurant. I was not, I had a gut fish. I was much slower. I respect the fastness. Those guys are amazing. They get a filet out of there in like, I don't even know, 20 seconds. That's exactly why we don't do it because they're, they're 10 times faster than we are. Uh, they're experts at what they do. They're super efficient with their labor and, and they know how to do it right. All right, so you've been doing this for, let me see if I can do the math in my head. You started in 2015, it's 2018. You're in some very nice showcase restaurants. You're in Bellacor and Spoon and Stable, Young Joni, um, pr- carried at a lot of other restaurants. Uh, you know, is it keep you keep growing from here? Definitely. Yeah, we're really just getting started on the production then. Uh, we're not even 50% capacity at our farms. We actually have two farms that don't even have fish yet. So we're we're just getting going. And Minneapolis is our only market for the most part. So the restaurants and some of the retailers up here, that is our entire market so far. And we're looking to 
grow from there and hit, you know, more restaurants, more retail stores up here. Interesting. And so th- you feel you feel happy about it? Like this is this is the future. This is what you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm too deep in it now. So uh, Minneapolis is a great market too for our fish, and we see a lot of potential. It's it's a it's a foodie market, so it, it fits. It's the really Silicon great. Valley of food. That's what it, I yeah. tell everyone. There's so many food companies here. You know, Target is largely a food company. Uh, General Mills, uh, Hormel, Lando Lakes. Like we are a. This is the the. When you talk about systems and management, people that care about food and think about food. Very much the Twin Cities, where the Silicon Valley of food. That's an idea I, I stole from Fred Haberman, who's a PR guy, but it's so true. And um, so this is a good market for that. And the fish quality is beautiful because it's is it because it's fresh or is it because it's the fresh water? It's a combination of everything. The water is really important. You know, you have fresh spring water coming in at hundreds of gallons a minute every single day of the year, and it's it's the cleanest water that you can really come across and it, the temperature of 48 degrees year-round also creates a, a firmer product than some of the warmer oh that makes sense yeah and not, not many people realize the the water temperature is a crucial factor in that and you give them plenty of space in a, a natural spring fed environment open to sun and a high quality diet and then on top of that we harvest and deliver the same day to the fish guys so you can't get it any fresher so if I came now, I gotta ask about predators because I'm always curious. Are there eagles just circling over? Oh yeah, we oh, have eagle are. ponds or eagle nests literally over the pond. Oh really? I mean that's where they build their nests. <laughs> it's it's rampant every single day. And so what do you? It's just an acceptable loss you, because they can't get like a hundred eagles there, or can you? No, no, they're territorial, so we don't get. But we get families of them. You know, every year they come back. And so the eagles, they're not the worst of our predators. They take one and they eat it, and it, it's not its not that big of a concern. Some of the, the bigger predators are more the blue herons and the kingfishers. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I love kingfishers. They're so pretty, but I suppose you don't love them. <laughs> they will eat thousands of fish. Really? Yes. Oh, interesting. So yeah. you're going to have to put nets over? Yeah, so we have nets over the ponds with the smallest fish because kingfishers are a small bird and they can only eat the smaller fish. And so we have nets over the small ponds, and then the big ponds, you know, once they're getting to a pound and up, then it's the blue herons. And so we have a, an electric fence around the perimeter because they're a wading bird. You're the only on the person I have ever met who has a, an electric fence for blue herons. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. I think you could have another revenue stream. You should have photographers. Like, they just call it. And, uh, <laughs> Good point. We do have some <laughs> photographers that have come down and taken pictures. So. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Okay, so you're you're if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Zach Lind from Driftless Fish. It's this growing company in Rushford, Minnesota, and the farms thereabouts where they raise rainbow trout. They start, they buy these eggs, they bring them in. They've got these um, freshwater springs that come up and they've created a local fish company, which is a, uh, uh, something that we really don't we don't have much of in the landlocked Twin Cities. And so I know people are going to ask, what happens to the water that the fish have been living in? It goes where? It goes into spring-fed creeks that are adjacent to the farms. And all of our farms, the discharge water goes through a settling pond first, which is vegetated with watercress and reeds and algae that consume the excess nutrients and settle out the waste before it gets to the creek. 
and we work very closely with the DNR on on managing the design and operations of these farms. Minnesota is actually one of the strictest states for water quality, which is an excellent thing. So if you're buying fish from Minnesota that's that's farm-raised outdoors, you know it's meeting the highest environmental regulations. That's good because I don't want to have a situation where uh, I'm so horrified by those big open waste pits at the big, you know, pig farms. It's like, that's not fair. It's not fair to the neighbors. It's not fair. You know, you got another one of these 500 year rain events. Um, it's just setting up people for a bad situation. So I like that you have a strict quality, you know, quick, strict standards and are meeting them. It seems like that's a fair, that's fair to everybody. That was very important when we started it. We know Southeast Minnesota is a hotbed of fly fishing, and they are some of the strongest proponents of clean water, and rightfully so. That's the lifeblood of the fishing community down there. And so we actually work very closely with fly fishing anglers, and they're all on board with the way we're managing our farms. And actually some of the best fly fishing spots, hidden secrets in Southeast Minnesota, is right behind our fish farms. All those excess bugs that are coming through, those wild brook trouts are just gorging themselves. Oh, funny! The don't tell anyone. These are the these are the secrets. All right. So if anybody is listening, they want to try driftless fish. It's quite a few places. Kowalski's. You know, if you're anywhere near one of those, you can find one. Go into restaurants. If you see the name on the menu, now you know what it means. If you're at Young Joni or a spoon and stable somewhere like that. If you want to check out their website, they've got a lot of good information. You're good web designers as well as good fish people. Uh, driftlessfish.com. Zach Lynn, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. All right, we come back. Yeah, I did make some trout recipes or not make them. I found them. Did President Eisenhower eat campfire trout? He did, and I'll tell you how he did it when we come back. Dara here. That was fun. I have been curious about this whole driftless trout situation. I think it is good. We're going to be self-sufficient. We're going to raise trout in the on the farms. It's all good. But what would this show be without some some trout recipes? All right. I got some beauties to recommend. These are all up on the website. Yes, they are. Our snazzy new WCCO website, which I love. All right, so look at WCCORadio.com, and you will see the recipes, which are as follows. So I want, of course, I want to get a little local celebrity action in with our trout. Andrew Zimmern has a pancetta wrap trout. This is, you take the whole trout, you wrap it in pancetta, which is a fancy Italian bacon, and you are on your way to dinner. So when you see the recipe, it's for whole trout, but you can do this with a trout fillet. You really can. Um, and if you only have plain old bacon instead of pancetta, you can do that too. Just uh, just do it. But you can't say pancetta enough times because that's fun to say. Pancetta. Doesn't that feel good? Come on, it feels good. All right, so then I've got another one much easier easier even than that parchment bundles of trout so if you hate messes you just take a square of parchment paper put your trout in with whatever you want maybe a little olive oil and basil uh, fold it all up make a little bag 
and then bake it, then serve it. Then you throw out the messy parts and compost it. That's how you do it. That recipe is up. Then what is the best smoked trout salad? I know you've been wondering about that. Right now, you can just hop in your car, buy all the smoked trout on the North Shore, and make a creamy dill sauce with cucumber salad. This is a really good way to eat trout. So the way this recipe is, you put it all on lettuce. But if you're thinking, I need more something more substantial, then just take the trout, the sauce, the lettuce, shove it into a baguette, wrap it all up. That is a perfect sandwich to take on the boat for the day because the sauce soaks into the bread. That's good. All right, so what's a classic, the easy, the plain you just take your you take your trout. It's just a long trout. You split it open. You put some herbs in there. You bake it or you grill it. I think grill it in the summer. And then you just have a nice bottle of white wine. You're like French. You're so happy. You're classy. That's how that is. And you can, you know, if, if you see the herbs that are up there, you think, oh, I have different herbs in my garden. Then switch it up. I give you permission. Now, as promised, the fanciest recipe that I love that also I got from a president. So President Ike Eisenhower, I like Ike, he liked taking a campfire. So just get your cast iron skillet, wood is burning, throw some bacon in there, cook the bacon, then eat the bacon, of course, but leave the bacon fat in there and use the bacon fat to fry your trout. That is how you make a five-star general, people. You you feed them like that, and then they just get so smart and self-sufficient. So this is an amazing recipe. He is an amazing president, 34th. Bacon fat is an amazing ingredient. I will stop saying amazing right now, take a little break, do some commercials. When I come back, we will do the ask me anything. You got something to ask me? Find me on the Twitter bot. I am at Dear Dara, and I'll answer your questions when we come back. Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl here from Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. I am restaurant critic, and I like trout. How do you like this show? We have gotten into a lot of trout. They're biting. I know that you like to uh, eat those fish because we are good Minnesotans, and that's what we like. All right, so here's a part of the show where I answer your questions. Again, ask me anything segment. I had a, a big question that came in through Facebook this week, and the question was, how do I decide the best of the best that are in that August issue? Okay, so you've seen the issue. It's got it's a red, and it's got a big trophy on the cover. That's a real trophy. Our art director had it engraved. We put French fries in it. How do we decide? Well, it is literally the most basic, easy thing in the world is that we sit there and we write down the list of restaurants that are the contenders and then we go to them one after the other. For the hot dog, the best hot dogs, I spent about three days eating so many hot dogs. I remember one day I went to Butcher and the Boar, which is one of the runners up after work 
and just sat there by myself and had a hot dog and it was delicious. And I was very full because I just eaten a very delicious hot dog. And I literally walked to Kiachi. It's got to be three or four miles, but I just needed to walk because I was so full of hot dogs. And I walked to Kiachi. I had two more hot dogs. I was very luckily ran into some friends of mine because I was getting kind of lonely and just eating hot dogs like a crazy person. And uh, then I just, you know, as I sat there, decided which of the two was better. So after many years of being a restaurant critic, I will say that the process I trust so much. Trust the process. I'll be in the middle of it sometimes. I'll be like, I'll never understand if this is a good restaurant. How am I supposed to make up my mind? No. If you trust the process, you can get through it. So the way that we figured out the best hot dogs, it's kind of nuts. But you just go and you eat one hot dog and then another hot dog and then your brain makes it a choice after all your critical decisions of what's the most delicious. And you will start to kind of see very simple distinctions. You'll be like, this one is not cooked well. Like this one is charred. Having the, the you know, really good heat and the char on the outside of the hot dog, not to sound like a total nerd, but it starts to make a difference. And you have to be a total nerd because you have to make the differences of all of those. And so each of those, each of those things that I wrote about, whether it's the best banh mi, the best lobster roll, the best hot dog uh, burger—that's a hotly contested one. You just go and you do the work, and it's not hard work, but you have to take it seriously. One of the things I've learned about being a restaurant critic is you just have to take it so seriously, and then not take it seriously at all, and just kind of stand in that tension between those two points. Does that make any sense? That's how we do it. So I hope you, I hope you appreciate it. And, uh, you know, send me mail saying I'm crazy. I might be. I just might be. I got another question. Question is, uh, visitors are coming to town and they want to go to museums. And uh, the person wrote was wondering kind of how to structure it. What are the best museums food-wise? Here's the story. Okay. I'm a big museum person. Mia, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, which I'm just getting around to being able to call Mia, because uh, that's what they want us to do. Uh, Mia has really good coffee. So I would say start your day there. They've got the agriculture and the whole coffee situation. So morning, Mia, then break for coffee. You can also have, they have agriculture restaurant there, and that's good for lunch, very healthy. You won't feel very sleepy. Then go over to the Walker because they have the restaurant Esker Grove. That is a national class restaurant, beautiful restaurant, wonderful restaurant. Take in the art of the Walker and then end your day there. And then you just eat and drink a ton and then you don't want to see any more art. And that's the way to do that. So that's my advice if you want to eat and museum at the same time. I got a good question for someone going up north. What do I think about the canned cocktails? I have been reading a lot about them. I have not tried as many as I want, but they sound good if you're, you know, taking it seriously. I don't know why if you have a, a good ginger beer and good rum and it's in a can, why that would be any worse. 
And I think like it's good for canoeing. You got to canoe in and don't want to carry too much weight. That would be a good thing at the end of the day. So I'm pro canned cocktails, I think, till I have a different opinion. <laughs> All right, I got a question. If it's too late uh, uh, for rhubarb, if you still got rhubarb growing, I would say at this point your rhubarb is not going to be tender. It's going to be a little tough. That said, I think you can get good flavor out of it. So why not, if you've got the stems and they're looking good, why not make a rhubarb syrup? Then take that syrup. So just I'm talking about just put sugar, rhubarb in a pan, cook it, and then strain out the rhubarb. And then use that syrup for cocktails, for lemonade, for all kinds of things. I read that we're having a lemon shortage because of the heat wave in California. So maybe you want to use your rhubarb instead of lemons for lemonade. All right. And then got time for maybe one or two more things. Um, freezer jam. What is it? It's it's jam you make without doing the whole heating thing. You're not going to have to cook it on the stove and do the canning part. You're just basically putting it in jars and putting the whole thing in the freezer. And so freezer jam, very simple. You can use pectin or you can not use pectin. Um it's uh, P- Pomona makes a pectin that you can use if you're not cooking it up. So I've done it. It's a good way to use your, your fruit. You got all kinds of raspberries you want to process real quick. Freezer jam. All right. So next week, next week, we've got Scott Pompu, the chef. He found a corner table. Now he's at McKinney Row. He's going to talk to us about what it's like to be cooking local for 20 years, 20 years in, if you can believe it. Okay, so next week, that's what we'll have. Till then, check your garden. You might have some cucumbers coming up under the uh, pumpkin leaves. And that would be crazy to miss those cucumbers. So go look and then come back and I will see you here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.